2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Overspending on Amazon? Earn while you shop with Drop. Earn rewards on every purchase, online or in-store. Download Drop now and use code DROP11 to get $5 in points. Get rewarded for shopping
2: today. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning.
1: The earth pours forth a profusion of medicinal plants and is always producing something for the use of man. We may even suppose that it is out of compassion to us that she has ordained certain substances to be poisonous, in order that when we are weary of life, hunger, a mode of death that most foreign to the kind disposition of the earth might not consume us by a slow decay that precipices might not lacerate our mangled bodies, that the unseemly punishment of the halter may not torture us by stopping the breath of one who seeks his own destruction, or that we may not seek our death in the ocean and become food for our graves, or that our bodies may not be gashed by steel." On this account it is that nature has produced a substance which is very easily taken, and by which life is extinguished, the body remaining undefiled and retaining all its blood, and only causing a degree of thirst. And when it is destroyed by this means, neither bird nor beast will touch the body, but he who has perished by his own hands is reserved for the earth. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is
4: Robert Lamb. And I'm Pliny the Elder. <laughs> Actually, I'm Christian Sager. Today's episode yeah. was brought to you by a quote by good old Pliny.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that's from The Natural History, uh, one of our, our fa- favorite uh, Roman historians. As always, you can't take uh, everything that uh, Pliny says um, <laughs> as, uh, as the complete truth. Yeah. Always take it with a certain grain of salt, but he's he – he, and, and we'll get back to the, the grain of salt uh, thing at the end uh, uh, because uh, that actually comes from the writing of Pliny. Uh, but uh, he always has su- such interesting uh, insight and commentary on the natural world. And in this case, he's talking about uh, the, the wonders of poison. Yeah, it's a nice little poetic riff on basically the
4: idea that our bodies are essentially – Like chemical machines, Mm -hmm. right? And that – like think of it like as in comparison to a car. Like instead of putting gasoline in a car, if you filled it up with milk, that's going to really mess with the system, right? Yeah, they're lactose intolerant. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And so basically we're focusing on – How there are these things in the natural world that if you just put them into our system, boy, does it really mess things up. And for the longest time, we didn't really understand why, right? There was all this mythology around the reasons why. Uh, We have a whole episode that's on Wolfsbane or actually Aconite Mm -hmm. uh, and the surrounding myths around that and the science of how that poisons the human body. But we thought, you know what, let's pull out the handbook. Let's look at some of the odder poisons that are out there. Uh specifically natural ones. We're not I don't think we have any synthetic ones in
1: here. No, I think all of these tie into a natural source. And and that's really that's really the the fascinating thing, right? Is that these are all generally cases, generally speaking, these are cases where the natural world, specifically the, the world of, of, of plants, has produced various chemical weapons for their defense, and humans are able to manipulate those chemical weapons uh, to our advantage. And we, I mean, we do that with things that aren't even poisons. We do that with spices. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, we're going to be looking at, at, uh, at particular substances that, that have been used and are used as deadly poisons.
4: Yeah, not all of these would necessarily be enough to fill up a whole episode. And also, if we were just going to do an episode on poisons in general, that would fill up probably the whole podcast. So we decided, let's boil it down. Each of us take three that we're really interested in talking about, do the research, and then bring it to you all. Yeah. Uh And I have to be honest, I mean, we've been talking about doing something like this for a while, but good old Game of Thrones has definitely brought this – to the forefront of uh, my mind because poisons are so common on that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a fan, I'm going to refrain from... Or if you're not a fan, rather... I'm going to refrain from mentioning any specifics, but George R. R. Martin has just created this entire world of fictional poisons. He's got the tears of, is it Lys? Tears of Lys? I think so. Then there's the strangler and the long farewell, but then he actually uses some real ones as well. In fact, Wolfsbane isn't in the show
1: as mentioned before. Hmm. Uh, he, he distorts what their actual effects are. Yeah. But Well, then you have the milk of the poppy as well, oh, which yeah. is a medicinal substance, but can be overdosed on. Uh, uh, fairly easily. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like this thing that,
4: I don't know, in present day, we don't usually think about poison all that much because it's not common even though it could be right uh especially like when we go through these examples today you realize like oh wow it's actually not that hard to get a hold of something that could absolutely kill my neighbor drop dead if i put it in their. oh practice. oh yeah
1: i mean and if you have if you have a child or if you have, a, have pets though you mean you're aware that there are certain certain substances you do not want them to get their their hands or their paws upon yeah yeah absolutely
4: so, we decided to hit our favorites, Uh and Robert, you're going to start us off
1: today. This one sounds interesting, The Devil's Foot. Yes. So, uh, we were talking about, you know, where do we see our poisons used fictionally? Mm-hmm. Uh, Game of Thrones, to be sure, but... So many different murder mysteries uh, in fiction revolve around a poison because it's always, oh, a mysterious death has occurred yeah. and then we have to connect the dots. It's like the classic answer to a locked room mystery is yeah. poison. Yeah. So uh, indeed, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a fictional poison from uh, the tales of Sherlock Holmes, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, tales, uh, that actually has a, a real world counterpart. Uh, It was actually inspired by a a particular poison. So some of my favorite Sherlock Holmes tales are the ones that that buck the more famous cliches. The ones where, say, Holmes lets the killer go free or the ones where the the narrative seems to uh, tread dangerously close to supernatural waters. And so the the perfect fit for both of these categories is 1910's The Adventure of the Devil's Foot, and it's pretty much my go-to tale. And I'm particularly fond of the 1988 uh, Granada adaptation that starred uh, uh, the wonderful Jeremy Brett as Holmes. Are these the ones that they used to play on PBS? Yes. Yeah. 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 And this is this is a wonderful episode because it it really gets into that kind of supernatural possibly supernatural territory and uh, and even some kind of psychedelic scenes.
4: Yeah, I th- I agree with you. I think like some of the best home stuff is where you're treading so close to something that's like a paranormal phenomena but then there's like an actual explanation for mm-hmm. it. In fact, I know a lot of people don't love this movie, but young Sherlock Holmes, that was one of the things that always attracted me to it as a kid, mm-hmm. was that it was like teetering on the brink of being supernatural.
1: Oh, yeah. That's one that I only have a vague memory of from when I was a kid, but I actually thought it was full-on supernatural. It wasn't until later that I realized that they were it had a, an hallucination plot. Yeah, there. I think that's it, yeah. So I am going to spoil... The Adventure of the Devil's Foot for you okay, out there. Spoilers now. for a 107-year-old <laughs> short story. Yeah, and, and if you are trying to remain spoiler-free on this, if you're like making your way through the Granada television series or you're reading the books, then I don't know, I guess skip forward like 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, and you can move on to the next one. Uh, but here's here's how it goes down. The case concerns a famed explorer named Dr. Leon Sterndale and the feuding uh, Tregenis family. So... Holmes and Watson—they're on a seaside holiday for health reasons. <laughs> um, you know, as you do—is it because
4: Holmes has been taking too many drugs again? He needs to clean them out.
1: Yeah, it is. Well, in the TV series, it is. Oh, okay. So um, yeah. it's—I uh, I don't think this is present in the in the actual written tale. But uh, Jeremy Brett especially wanted Holmes to kick his um, his addiction. Okay. So he insisted that this would be a good episode for him to kick his cocaine and morphine.
4: Ah, okay. Okay.
1: I was just joking. I had no, no idea. Yeah. I, well, that's where I go to seaside towns for. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they're in the midst of this and Holmes is like, you know, he's taken his syringe and buried it in the sand. Uh, and then suddenly a local man, Mr. Mortimer, uh, Truginus, arrives with a vicar to report a sudden case of insanity. So Tregennis's two brothers, uh, have suddenly gone mad and the the sister is dead. Hmm. They, find, uh, they find the two brothers disturbingly just stark raving mad in their kitchen and the sister Brenda sits opposite the window and she's just completely dead. So Sherlock investigates. And the early suspicion is that something terrifying appeared at the window and it killed her with fright and just drove them mad. So this, you know, just kind of potentially supernatural encounter, like what was this being that appeared mm-hmm. at the window? But he starts looking at the evidence and the ground outside the window is not disturbed. Uh, the mystery remains, but Holmes is is very, you know, he's going to side on the, the non-supernatural explanation. But then uh, Mortimer Tregennis winds up dead as well. And uh, there's this lamp burning beside him uh, on the table. Now here in the lamp, Holmes finds some unburnt powder. So he tests this out on himself. He Burns it, inhales the smoke, and he nearly succumbs to madness and death as well. And there's this fabulous sequence in the TV show where he has these psychedelic visions of death. Okay. Um, And then we, we finally learn through his investigation that what happened is that Mortimer stole a sample of a deadly African poison from the local home of the explorer, Dr. Leon Sterndale. Okay. Now, Sterndale had just left for a lengthy journey overseas. So... Mortimer thought that he was going to be out of the picture, you know, for virtually forever because it was, this was going to consume the rest of his life. Mm. But, uh, he had, uh, he ended up receiving word of the sister's death, of Brenda's death. And Brenda, he had loved her for years, but he was unable to marry her, so he had a, you know, a deep connection to her. So he returns and he kills Mortimer Tregennis with the same deadly poison that was used on his beloved. And the poison is, uh, we're told, is Radix Petis Diaboli the devil's foot root. Okay. So why, do they give an explanation as to why it's called that? Does it look like a little, like, demon foot? Like a red foot with some toenails? Uh, kind, I mean, sort of. It looks like a, like a root and has devilish effect. Yeah. And, uh, and I also remember in the Granada series, anytime they introduce it, they have kind of this, uh, uh, you know, African drumbeat in the background, which is really
4: cool. Oh, yeah. I, I'm recalling, geez, do you remember we talked about this in the Wolfsbane episode, I think, or maybe it was the mushrooms episode. Mm-hmm. I went to the dog park one time and there was this weird fungus growing in the dog park. I took a picture of it and put it on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Facebook page. And immediately members of our audience were like, oh, that is such and such. Fungus, and it was like the devil's horn. I believe ah. was the, well, the term for it. So that's why I'm sort of imagining <laughs> this this demon looking
1: mushroom. I guess. Yeah, it, uh, it. I mean, it certainly is an authentic sounding title. Mm. It is a fictitious poison. However, there is a grounding in actual botany. So this was this was really cool to learn. I was not familiar with this story until until recently when I started looking into it. So according to uh, Two different sources I looked at here, Books Health, the Books Health and History blog of the New York Academy of Medicine, and as well as an article in the Guardian. Uh, according to them, Holmes' creator Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, did some self-experimentation of his own as a third-year medical student at the University of Edinburgh with a substance uh, known as gelsimium. And he wrote about this in an, in the in an 1879 issue of the British Medical Journal. Hmm. This is going to turn
4: out to be a common theme I think today as people just trying stuff out on themselves.
1: Well, it kind of gets back to our Wolfbane episode where we talked about yeah. the, the the mythical origins in, in Chinese traditional medicine that you had this one uh, godlike being that kind of went around trying these things and determining what was poison because mm-hmm. that essentially that sort of trial and error and then you know the, the knowledge you pass on that's That's where we learned that there are certain things you eat and certain ones you don't. And there's this gray area of stuff that you know exactly how much to apply and when. I think I'm glad that we're at a point in history where I don't – I'm not in a situation where I'm like,
4: I guess I should just
1: try that. (laughs) Try try a small amount of it and see what happens. Yeah, I mean especially with with, uh, galsimium. So there are three varieties of this. Two are found in Central America and one in southern China. It's a woody vine with bright yellow flowers and the Asian variety, uh, Gelsimium elegans, is the most deadly of the three and it's also known as heartbreak grass. So Gelsimium was actually once used to treat migraines, uh, but the but the key side effect was loss of muscle control. Mhm. So this is also a common theme
4: which is that like uh the reason why we know about a lot of this stuff is cuz we used it to treat
1: various uh, ailments over yeah, the years, yeah. right? But that too much of it, too much of anything's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Too much of uh, something from your spice rack will, will give you um, uh, you know, dire consequences in, in some cases. Yeah. So prior to writing this paper and conducting this self-experiment, uh, Doyle had taken a tincture of this stuff to treat nerve pain. But for the experiment, he took nine milliliters and he reported, quote, severe frontal headache with diarrhea and general lassitude. Okay. What's lassitude mean? I'm not familiar with that. Is that loose bowel syndrome? Well, you know, he's just kind of uh, loose in the seat, I guess you would say. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. So then he upped the dosage to 12 milliliters. And at this point, quote, the diarrhea was so persistent and prostrating – that I must stop at 12 milliliters. I feel great depression and a severe frontal headache. The pulse was still normal, but weak. It's too bad he didn't write
4: this into the Sherlock Holmes story. It's just like this story about these (laughs) these
1: detectives having horrible diarrhea and headaches. Yeah, death death by or with diarrhea um, would have made it more horrific in some ways, but he decided to sort of, uh, you know, weird fiction it out. I think he made it classier. (laughs) So, uh... You know, the basic gist here, though, is that um, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was something of a poison enthusiast, and he was a risk taker, so he conducted this experiment on himself. Uh, we we know now with uh, additional uh, research into the matter that an overdose of this stuff would result in dizziness, nausea, blurred vision and convulsions, and higher doses could result in paralysis of the spinal cord, and this would lead to a near total loss of muscular power and eventually asphyxia.
4: Oof. Okay, not a good way to go.
1: Yeah, it's not quite the madness and death of uh, the devil's foot, uh, but it's pretty bad. So gilsimium has been used as an analgesic in various homeopathic products, but the toxicity limits its usefulness. At the dawn of the 20th century, it was still being used in asthma and respiratory remedies, and it also factors into traditional Chinese medicine where it's used to treat pain. Okay. But it has allegedly been used as a deadly poison. Okay. Uh, and this is this is where we end up with a couple of very recent cases of uh, alleged galsamium poisoning, and they both took place in 2012. So according to The Guardian, in 2012, uh, the death of Chinese forestry tycoon Long Yan was linked to a, quote, poison cat stew containing uh galsamium. Wait, wait. <laughs> Is this a stew made of cat or a stew for cats? Uh, Well, in this case, made with cat. Okay. And galsimium. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll occasionally find, uh, you know, Chinese dishes that still have... these these meats with yeah them.
4: I'm aware from the time that I spent mm-hmm. in Beijing I remember that that kind of stuff being on the menu
1: yeah. occasionally okay but, just wanted uh, to make sure for our audience. Yeah so he he definitely ordered it with the cat, but if there was gelsemium in it he he definitely did not order right. that part. He didn't ask that for was that. some that was <laughs> a nefarious Special spice. Yeah. Right. So another case and this one again is uh is alleged the two thousand twelve death of Russian businessman and whistleblower Alexander Perepelevchny.
4: This seems to be, like, a common uh, – at least, like, in terms of, like, news media, where we're hearing about poisoning the most is
1: Russian whistleblowers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, probably we could, do, we could do a whole episode just on espionage-related poisonings. Yeah.
4: In fact, like, as I was looking up, like, different poisons to hit for this episode, so many of the examples kept coming up. It was like, oh, in the last 10 years,
1: you know, this – Russian former diplomat was poisoned. This journalist was poisoned, mm-hmm. yada, yada. Now, in this case, as with some of these uh, these others you're alluding to, it's not 100% certain. Uh, the Gelsimium link, uh, it comes via a life insurance company ordered test two years after his death. Hmm. And based on that, it has been suggested that he was assassinated by Russian operatives. Wow. Yeah. So – Uh, So I think that's a a fabulous uh, poison to kick off here because we go from the fictional realm to, uh, you know, this tale of an author uh, testing a real poison out on himself and then to, uh, you know, recent uh, alleged poisonings in China and Russia. All right. Well, I will add that index card to my recipe book (laughs) Uh,
4: and I will I will counter that with one to you. Have you ever heard of Spanish fly before? I have. This is the kind of thing 14 year old boys ask each other. As people who've listened to the show for a while know, I I actually grew up in Singapore. And you could kind of buy substances over there that you wouldn't necessarily be able to find in, like, American malls, right? Mm -hmm. And there were constantly students at my school talking about how they had purchased Spanish fly while they were on a trip to Malaysia or Indonesia or something like that. And they'd, like, pull, like, a weird little vial out and it would just be some powder. And, you know... 14-year-old boys, what's, what's Spanish fly? Oh, it's this magic love potion. And all you have to do is like uh, put it on somebody or make sure that they eat it and they fall in love with you.
1: <laughs> that was the urban myth of this mm-hmm. when I was in high school, right? Ironically, uh, there's actually a, a bit of stand-up from Bill Cosby uh, from Ooh. his early years about uh, childhood tales of, of Spanish fly and how wonderful it was supposed to be. Yeah. So I'll just I'll just leave that there. For everyone to consider. It is. It's like a really
4: weird thing like when I think back on it that like we would sit around and kind of talk about this and obviously there's no scientific merit behind that as I will get into. Mm-hmm. But, but uh talk about it as like, oh, this – that's a really intriguing thing about the world that I didn't realize that there's
1: a substance that just makes somebody fall in love with you, right? Like, right. Like – uh, but and it's then a you, wonderful way, I guess, to rebrand a, a, a poison for sexual assault.
4: Well, that's exactly it. Right. Like I look back on that and I'm like these these innocent boys around like the, the lunch table in the cafeteria are talking about this. and You don't really realize. Then you extrapolated it out to Bill Cosby levels and you realize like, oh, my God, this is horrible. You know, mm-hmm. now Spanish fly is a real thing, but it's not what I was told when I was 14 <laughs> living in Singapore. Actually, what it is, is something called cantharidin. And cantharidin is a substance that is derived from a subgroup of blister beetles. And it can cause the skin to blister. This is where these bugs get their name. Specifically, the blister beetle is known as the Spanish fly, or the Lyta vesicatoria. And it's common to a uh, South European species from which cantharides is extracted and commercially prepared by crushing the wing cover on the adults, now there is reportedly Spanish fly that is found in northern Mediterranean reg- regions, not just in Spain. Basically, these bugs secrete cantharidin from their mouths, and uh, there's in their joints they s- have this milky substance that seeps out. It sounds really gross, uh, but the male beetle uses this as a defense mechanism. And then here, here's an interesting point that leads to the myth. The male gives the female this substance as a copulatory gift before they mate. So that might be like the origin of this whole thing, but it's actually quite poisonous. But despite how poisonous it is, it's used as a skin irritant and a diuretic and, yes, as an aphrodisiac in some cultures. The lethal dosage for an adult human of Spanish fly is about 10 milligrams. And in fact, one JAMA dermatology article reviewed for this episode, it argued that cantharidin should be re-added to the medications that doctors currently use in their office. Uh, basically, it's used... They apply it topically to treat warts or uh, something like molluscum skin infections. Mm-hmm. In 1962, however, here in the United States, it lost its FDA approval because manufacturers didn't submit their data about its efficacy. And it's expected to soon be back on what is called the FDA's bulk substances list, which permits physicians to use it in the office on individual patients. So – Presumably, if you came in and you had a bad case of warts or something on your hand, your doctor would say, well, you know what? I'll pull some of this cantharidin out of the old cabinet here. We'll put it on there. It'll blister away these warts, and then your skin will be free of this. Uh, the JAMA article actually also says that they could not find any reports of cantharidin poisoning being caused by the application from a physician. Okay, So while this is really poisonous and physicians use it, it's also – you know, traditionally been used safely by physicians. Now, very much like the poison that you introduced us to, it used to be used topically in Asian medicine and they would use it to treat piles, ulcers, venomous worms, and tuberculosis. Orally, it was used to treat abdominal masses, rabies, and cancer. Huh? Yeah. It's also worth noting that this is very poisonous to horses as well as humans. So in fact, fields that are near horses are usually have to be surveyed to make sure that none of these beetles are in them because if they get a dose of these, it can kill a horse. But where's this reputation of this aphrodisiac come from? Where did this, how did this myth get to my cafeteria table in school? It's still a mystery, actually. Now, obviously I, I presented you with the, you know, idea that because this male beetle gives it to the female beetle, maybe there's something to that. But it's also thought to be because it causes a dilation of blood vessels, which allows an increased blood flow. And that would be useful for one human organ through what's known as priapism. This is essentially when the penis remains erect Non-sexually for hours without stimulation. This is a, a word that I learned for this episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, you occasionally see this, uh, this will come up in terms of say, a bicycle accident could cause yeah. this. Uh huh. Kind of, yeah, it, it, it's, it, not a, it's not a pleasant experience. That's like
4: the medical term for something, yeah, like if you mm-hmm. come into an emergency room and, and that is going on, that's what they should refer to it as. So it's purported that Henry IV and the Marquis de Sade both used Spanish fly. In fact, it's said that the Marquis de Sade poisoned prostitutes with candles that contained it in order to increase their sexual response. Hmm. So based on everything that I've read of and by the Marquis de Sade, that sounds right on point but also sounds awful, right? (laughs) So – The way that this essentially works, the intense irritation and blistering it causes is incredibly unpleasant. And when you ingest it, that same blistering effect happens in the intestinal tract. This causes severe hemorrhaging. It leads to the vomiting of blood, darkened urine, and bloody stool. There is also a burning of the mouth, difficulty swallowing, nausea, seizures, and cardiac abnormalities There is no antidote to this, and death is painful and rapid. So you're essentially – it sounds like you're putting, like, battery acid in your throat.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's nothing sexy about this at all. No.
4: Cantharidin has no odor, and it's colorless. So this is, like, the perfect kind of thing to use as a poison, right? It also withstands degradation by heat or drying, so it's difficult to remove it. Like, if you spilt it on something, it's not that easy to get rid of. Now, there's this story about a guy named Arthur Ford – and he worked at a chemical manufacturer in London and he really wanted to get one of his employees to fall in love with him. He wanted to leave his wife and I think that this was like an administrative assistant who worked for him or something like that. So he took cantharidin from the chemical manufacturer's storage area and he spiked coconut ice with it. And then he gave it to all his office employees. So this is this is where, like, these urban legends come from and then go horribly awry. Two women died, including the one he was trying to get to fall in love with him. And he himself was hospitalized but then recovered. When they investigated this, they found up to ten times the lethal dose of Cantharidin in the victims. Guess what punishment he got for this?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I should hope they just really put him away. For two murders would be a, a horrible poison. Five years. Oh. You got five years. It's actually thought
4: by medical researchers that cantharidin poisoning may actually be a more common cause of morbidity than is generally recognized. Huh. So we basically aren't equipped to recognize this in all situations. So it's possible, like, maybe some of these uh vials of supposed Spanish fly that people are buying – Actually have some cantharidin in them and could lead to poisoning events. Hmm. Okay, so here's another story based around this. In 1952, a doctor in the United Kingdom tried using cantharidin on children and he wanted to use it to test against rheumatic fever to see what would happen. It had previously been thought to work as a treatment for rheumatic th- fever, especially when, like, as a symptom of that, the liquid would build up around a human heart. So this doctor, he would use the substance to blister the skin on these children's torsos, and then he would snip away this blistered skin, uh, and he'd dress the wound. And he would note, oh, well, the wound would heal in a few days. He tested around 40 children in this experiment without their consent or knowledge. So, like, he would just, I guess, say, like, okay, well, we're going to try this medicine now. And it would burn them, cause these horrible blisters, and he would cut the blisters off. And essentially, that was as far as he got with his research. Oh. Yeah. So, okay. As I said before... There's no antidote for this. It can be treated topically with acetone, ether, fatty soap, or alcohol. And essentially, these help dissolve and dilute it. So, you know, you spill some of this stuff on you before it starts blistering you. You you put that on. Hopefully, it helps dissolve it. But if you ingest it, there's only support measures available. So, look. Hopefully none of you out there are rushing out to go buy this stuff. It is an entire urban myth. I you know, I'm glad I never got my hands on any of this stuff. I never heard of any poisoning incidents uh in my school when this was going on. I think mainly like what these guys were selling down at the market was probably just like they would literally take like a household fly, grind it up into dust, and sell it to some dumb Ugh. kid for five bucks, you know. Um they would dry it out first, I would assume. Mm-hmm. But If there's any point where for whatever reason you think that, like, there's a danger that either you or somebody around you has ingested this, you're supposed to swallow generous amounts of water and avoid fatty foods like milk. And the reason why is because fatty foods will increase the absorption of the cantharidin in your system. You also don't want to induce vomiting. So some people think, like, well, oh, you swallowed this. Just vomit it back out. But what happens if you do that is – it will further damage the esophagus on its way out. So it goes down. It causes this blistering effect. And then if you try to vomit it back out, it causes the burning all over again. Oh. Yeah. So it's just this is really nasty stuff. And it somehow has this reputation as like this b- bizarre love drug.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, uh, again, we can't, we can't stress it strongly enough. Uh, Do not obtain Spanish fly and certainly do not administer Spanish fly.
4: Yeah, absolutely an urban legend. uh, But it seems to be an extremely effective way to poison somebody.
1: All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to explore two more of our six deadly poisons.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
1: all right we're back so you have a word written down here and it looks like goo yes goo uh, which is uh, in this case it is a a chinese uh, poison of sort of mythic and folkloric uh, origin i like the like if you extrapolate that to our word goo g-o-o it's kind of like the perfect name for a poison you know yeah oh what'd you use Eh, just some goo well you know this uh this whole uh, episode that i'm going to discuss here reminds me a bit of the uh the, the comic that you turned me on to Orkstain. oh yeah, there's a lot of poisons yeah, in Orkstain, there's like a yeah. whole tribe that lives in uh, i think they live in the mountains or the jungle, deep jungles, yeah, and they have this fantastic abilities with poison they're able to shoot the like orc assassins with a poison that makes their head explode that sort of thing.
4: Yeah, if if you're unfamiliar with this and, and you're curious about it, it's a a comic series by a guy named James Stoko and Orcstein is essentially like a I guess high fantasy, but pretty much all the characters in it are orcs.
1: Yeah, and it has a very almost kind of Gonzo style to it that rem- reminds me a little bit of uh I mean, it has kind of that sort of heavy metal energy to it. Yeah, it's a little yeah. bit, bit of that sort of, um, uh, you know, what is it? A 2000 AD kind of sensibility. I think that's the kind of stuff that influenced him. Yeah. You know, uh, I should mention this
4: to you, but I'll, I'll tell our audience about it while we're here too. He has since gone on to do a Godzilla miniseries mm-hmm. that I highly recommend. Imagine that guy doing Godzilla. Oh yeah. And then uh, he just started doing an aliens uh, miniseries. It's cool. called aliens dead orbit. And
1: man, his take on the aliens is so bizarre. Yeah. I mean, he he. His- his uh, use of body horror and biology is wonderful, so I imagine that is as well. Keep that in mind as, as we, we roll forward here. So I found this, uh, this excellent source on goo in uh, this uh, article by uh, Norma Diamond that was published in a 1988 edition of, of Ethnology. Uh, it's titled The Miao and Poison, Interactions on China's Southwest Frontier. And it does a fabulous job of just breaking down this concept of goo. So a lot of it concerns folk tales and superstitions surrounding poison, and then the use of these superstitions against frontiers people uh, and, and women in particular. Hmm. So we're talking about uh, Han Chinese tales of the Miao people. The Miao are one of China's fifty-five recognized ethnic groups, and these this would be mostly in the mountains of southern China. Now, the frontier, Diamond points out, was – this was a frightening place. Frontiers tend to be on Mm -hmm. the edges of of empire. So there was periodic unrest because it was a frontier after all. And and this was – there there was also a place where one encountered a different ethnic people with seemingly barbaric ways. And finally, she points out there were – a number of endemic diseases uh, such as encephalitis, meningitis, dysentery, leprosy. So people, you know, would travel out to the frontier and they would come back with tales. Well, oh, the the people are hostile and strange, and there are all these weird diseases. There are horrible things happening to people's bodies there, and uh, and and so you end up with a a, a superstitious uh, tradition that is very much grounded in. Um, xenophobia mm-hmm. really and mm-hmm. also in uh, in a in a good bit of misogyny as we'll explore man these poisons already we just
4: just on our third poison, we're already in some really dangerous social and cultural cultural
1: territory. Yeah, because they would get into this uh this line of thinking to where the Meow were not only a people that used poison. Yeah. But they themselves were poisonous. And like they had to poison people to keep the poison from like eating them up. Oh wow. What a what an odd form of demonization. Yeah. Ugh. So you had two main forms of the Gu folktale, and these are from the the Tang dynasty, and this is around 618 uh, CE and onward. Uh, The first of these is this this idea of the five poisonous creatures. So in this one, uh, Gu was simply a a quasi-magical poison that was created by sealing the five poisonous creatures, a snake, a centipede, a toad, a scorpion, and a lizard inside of a jar, Mm -hmm. and you keep it. This jar in a dark place for a year. Okay, sounds reasonable. All right, <laughs> you you <laughs> open up that jar and you find that essentially there's a battle royale in that jar oh, with the okay. creatures eating each other until there's only one creature left, and then it of course dies and withers in in the container. And, uh, so the idea is that you open the jar up, and then you take the contents, and you ground them down, you make a powder, and this is the goo poison that causes sickness and death. Holy cow, yeah, that sounds... vile.
4: Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to figure out who would come up out on top of this, uh, five poisonous creatures jar. Hmm. I guess, I, I mean, my gut instinct is to say the scorpion, but,
1: uh, maybe the snake? I guess the snake, if it's gonna actually eat everything, right? Yeah, right. But I don't, you know, a lot of logistical concerns come up. You open it up and there's just this happy snake with a full belly. (laughs) So, um, so that's one version of it. But then there, there, there are other variants as well. Uh, there's this idea of the goo spirit. Okay. So in this variant, you have a woman of the meow and she takes, she keeps a snake, a toad, or tortoise or a bird. She keeps it in a secret chest or a wall compartment. Mm -hmm. She feeds it. And the idea is that if her husband or lover deserts her for another, then the goose spirit maintained by this practice goes forth and poisons him. So it's used to uh, ensure faithfulness or to seek revenge. And Diamond also explains that there's this idea that the use of a goose spirit is a way for the poisonous figure of the male female to purge herself of her own inner poison. The woman, it was said, uh, she would she had red she would, would have reddened eyes, and she would become jaundice, swollen, and lose her appet- appetite if she didn't use her poisonous powers. So, if she were to use it to blight a tree, then she'd be protected for three months. If she used it on an ox or a pig, she'd be protected for a year, and if she used it on a human being, three years. Okay, so this is essentially. Uh, this
4: section of China's version of witchcraft and familiars—it's like yeah. their cultural uh, version of demonizing women.
1: Yeah, it's a—it's a. Essentially, we're talking about poison-themed witches here. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Now, if we set aside witchcraft and xenophobia and so forth, uh, we still do have some accounts that point to believable use of poisons by the meow. So, according according to Diamond, we have we have the following. Candidates to consider, because Mm -hmm. again, there are there, there do seem to be accounts of them actually using poisons as as in their, uh, you know, in combat, etc. So arsenic was readily available, and this is the so-called king of poisons, and it's long had a place in traditional uh, Chinese medicine. I'm imagining like arsenic in like a a, an aluminum can, like beer, (laughs) king of poisons, yeah. Uh, and, and poisons, various poisons were used in hunting by the meow. So you had uh, the one in particular that's really interesting, the sap of Anateris toxicaria, a tree that's found in southern Yunnan and in uh, Guangxi. And this is uh this is known as poison mother. And uh, what you have here is a brownish red dried juice, sometimes mixed with snake venom. And it was widely traded in the area around Nanning. Hmm. Uh, where and I've I've been I've been to Nanning. That's uh, one of the the places I visited a few years years back. Okay, uh, but I did not go to the poison. Did market. you drink any snake
4: venom? No, I did not drink snake venom. <laughs> Um, I didn't have any occasion when I lived in China to have <laughs> ingest any poisons either. But it seems like this is one of those things, though, right? Is like it's real easy from a Western perspective mm-hmm. to hear this stuff and to be like, oh, my gosh, like there's just poisons
1: all over the place there. But we've got our own versions. Oh, yeah. Of there are plenty of poisons around here. Now, this does remind me of uh, particularly of, of a Thai tradition of there being like a whiskey with a, with a poison, like a cobra or a poisonous snake in Okay. The
4: yeah. It's sort of like the idea of, uh, what is it, with tequila and you've got a... With a worm? Yeah. And yeah. Then, isn't there another one? It's not tequila, but there's another one with a scorpion, I think. Okay. I, you can tell I'm not a drinker.
1: But, but it's reminiscent of what we're talking about with the, with the goo here. Yeah. 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 Now, that, uh, Anateris toxicaria, it's also known as the poison arrow tree in China. It's, cause it's, uh, and it's so deadly that they had this saying, seven up, eight down, nine death. Because, bear with me here, once you're hit with it, you can only take seven steps uphill, eight downhill, or nine on even terrain before you fall dead. <laughs> That's so. a great, like, uh, movie for, for, like, a martial arts movie or something oh, yeah. like that. Or, or like, a video game or, or even, like, a band. Yeah. Like a wuxia themed band. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, what happens here with, with this particular poison is that the sap from this tree... Poison arrow tree seems to affect the activity of muscle membrane and heart muscle contraction. So you end up with death by cardiac arrest. Okay. So Diamond says, uh, quote, a fatal dose causes a falling heart rate, respiratory difficulties, muscular weakness, paralysis, convulsions, and finally death within a short period of time. A sublethal dose passes out of the body fairly quickly, though the victim may experience nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headaches, and visual disturbances. So the problem here is that that doesn't match up with some of the descriptions of goo. Right. Yeah. The symptoms are different. Yeah. So other things to consider here. The meow can, uh, obtained commercial strychnine around the dawn of the 20th century. Mm. But before that, they had access to our old friend asinite or wolf spang.
4: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And I remember us talking about that in that episode, too, that there was some thought that they were using
1: that actually... Wasn't it on arrowheads? Uh yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's possible that they were using that for goo. However, it was a pretty common aspect of traditional medicine at the time and remains so. And again, the symptoms don't necessarily match up with all the tales. It's also possible that there is some unknown herb that was that factored into these poisonings, uh, you know, something that historians, especially Western historians, have missed, or I mean it maybe he's even been forgotten. Huh. But uh, I don't know, it seems it seems more likely that we're looking at, uh, at one of those earlier examples, you know, the idea of uh, the poison arrow tree uh, coming into play, for instance. So I think it's
4: fascinating how human beings over history take these things as simple as, like, a bean, or a tree, mm-hmm. or a mushroom, and we create these entire uh, systems of, like, morality around them, right? Like, in this instance, like, this witchcraft idea, yeah. right? And then in my next example, my next poison one, this is like an entire way of of judging wrongdoing. It's called the ordeal bean. Ooh. And uh it is known by the Latin term physostigma venenosum. Sounds very Harry Potter-esque, but <laughs> I, it's an actual thing. So numerous West African tribes used They used to depend on something that's called the caliber bean, and this was in something called a trial by ordeal. And it basically it attempted to determine people's guilt or innocence in an ordeal that they left to divine control. And so this was subsequently known as the ordeal bean or also as the lie detector bean for this reason. Essentially, what would happen is the tribes would feed numerous poison seeds to the accused to determine if they were witches, sound familiar, Mm -hmm. murderers or possessed by evil spirits. And if they were, quote, innocent, then God would allow them to live and they would vomit the beans back up. If not, the sentence of death was immediately carried out by the bean. So essentially, here's this poison bean. If it kills you, then you deserved it. Uh, if it doesn't, then well, that's God telling us that you're innocent.
1: Basically, we have the same scenario as like push the witch off a cliff or put the witch underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if she lives, well, then I guess God thinks you're okay. Exactly. Now, the administration of this was known locally
4: as Chopnut, mm-hmm. and it was discovered by the rest of the world when missionaries from Scotland arrived in 1846. Then the bean made its way back to Scotland where it was studied. A reverend there discovered that the local king had actually ordered the destruction of the vine that these seeds were grown on so that he could maintain a monopoly on the administration of justice. So he essentially made it so that only his area could obtain these beans. So everybody had to come to him to decide
1: whether or not somebody was innocent or guilty based on whether they could use the beans or not. You know, this is fascinating because it makes me think of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, because mm. the time period is right. Uh, he he and We mentioned the University of Edinburgh. Yeah. And this has an African, uh, you know, like tribal ritual origin, whereas um, the gilsimium did not. The gilsimium was tied to South America or China. So I, I yeah. can't help but wonder, I mean, he, he would have being a, if he was truly a poison nut, he would probably been aware of, of this yeah, yeah. well let, let's learn a little bit more about it and then maybe we can we can see if it, it's
4: connected more to that Sherlock Holmes story than the galsimium was it's also said that there was a form of dueling that was used with these beans and apparently what they would do is two opponents would divide a bean and each of them would eat one half of it and the quantity was essentially you know the the only was known it could kill either of the adversaries. Huh. So even half a bean was enough to kill a man. So sometimes they would both die. Sometimes one of them would die. Sometimes neither of them would die. But more often than not, these beans just killed you. Huh. So it's like a really high stakes drinking game. Yeah, yeah. So the Calabar bean is actually the seed of a climbing leguminous plant that's known as Physostigma venenosum, and it is poisonous to human beings when it's chewed. But hold on, if the whole bean is swallowed intact, it might prevent the release of its toxins. So this is apparently like the trick, huh. right? Like if you ever find yourself in this situation with the ordeal bean, just don't chew. And then you've got like a a better chance. That doesn't mean that you're going to live through it, but it's uh it's more likely to release its toxins if you huh. chew it up. Interesting. So these can be found in the coastal area of southeastern Nigeria that's known as Calabar. And like I said, they were first noticed in 1846. It took actually until 1861 for botanists to name it, and they named it for the snooping beak-like solid appendage that's at the end of the stigma on these vines. And it isn't until the rainy season there, which lasts from June through September, that the plant produces its its best, most toxic beans. And the first medical student who investigated its effects on himself was a guy named Robert Christensen. And he's the one who actually named it, too. There's nothing in the external aspect of this bean, whether it's its taste or its smell, to distinguish it from other harmless legume seeds. In fact, it's known to have been eaten by children accidentally and killed them. So this is again like seems it's got that you know qualifications for great poison, right? It's odorless, it's mm-hmm. hard to detect. Uh it, it's we're about to find out like how it kills people. It's part of a religious rite as well. Mm-hmm. So. yeah. So the reason why it's poisonous is because the pre, there's a presence in it of something called physostigmine alkaloid and this acts on the human nervous system pretty much the same way nerve gas does. It disrupts communication between the nervous system and our organs. This subsequently leads to contraction of the pupils, profuse salivation, convulsions, seizures, spontaneous urination and defecation, loss of control of the respiratory system, and finally, death by asphyxiation. This seems to be like the the common Mm -hmm. end result of these poisons is asphyxiation. It also affects the reflex functions of our spinal cords, and in fatal cases, it's going to paralyze the sensory columns in your spinal cord as well. Now, it should be noted that this has no action on unbroken skin, right? So if you, unlike, uh, the Spanish fly stuff that I was talking about earlier, it doesn't cause like a blistering effect if you just put one of these on your skin, okay? But ophthalmologists used to use small doses of this. They would derive physostigmine out of these beans and they would use it to make patients' pupils contract.
1: Huh. Yeah.
4: So, like, essentially, they would really, you know, boil this down to its essence, use a tiny, tiny
1: amount, and then drop it into your eyes. Wow. Just another case. I feel like on in, in most of these examples, the, you know, one, one individual's medicine is another's poison, depending on the, the dosage.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So in recent years, the chemical has actually been applied to helping paralyzed men who want children. Now, this is where it gets interesting, especially in comparison to the Spanish fly we uh-huh. talked about earlier. So because this bean affects the autonomic nervous system, it allows men who are otherwise paralyzed to ejaculate when they normally can't. Hmm. So this allows them to become fathers. Like normally, you know, if they're married, they, they're, they you know, concerned like, oh, I'm never going to be able to be a, a, a father, you know, to my partner's child. But with this bean, if it's applied correctly, they can. So, so there's these strange derivations Sorry. off of uh, of this thing that has this cultural history of being used for dueling or judging whether somebody is a witch or not. Now, scientists today are actually conducting studies to see if the alkaloid here can aid in reversing things like Alzheimer's disease because it affects neurotransmitters in the brain, and weirdly, it's also an effective antidote. For another poison, this is like one of the more more common poisons, uh, atropa belladonna, also Ah, known as nightshade, essence of nightshade. So this is actually a cure for poisoning by belladonna. Finally, it's being studied to see if physostigmine could be used as a way to block nerve gas. So like sarin, for instance, if you're in a situation where you're surrounded by sarin, if you take this, it might be able to bind to the same kind of enzymes that sarin binds to. so it's hoped that the right dosage will block the worst effects of the sarin without causing lasting damage to the victim. So this is just
1: fascinating all these apparent ways that you could use this thing hmm. that is essentially like an evil bean yeah and it makes me think of our Svalbard episode talking about the importance of of gene uh and, and particularly seed banks. Yeah. Because any any number of these uh th- these uh these biological specimens out there uh they may have hidden properties that we haven't quite exploited, you know. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you
4: think about it like this was didn't even start being explored really until like 150, 170 mm-hmm. years ago by Scottish uh missionaries essentially, right? So there's like potentially decades of research that could go into something that's just this ordeal bean, and we could find all of these medicinal
1: ways to use them. All right. Well, on that note, let's take one final break. And when we come back,
0: two more poisons. And really, that should do you in. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
4: All right, we're back. So, have you decided um, how which
1: poison you're going to use yet? <laughs> on about, myself? <laughs> well, hey man, on whoever. Hmm, I don't know. I I guess I still want that one Pliny was talking about that's just going to be so so delightful. Yeah. yeah. Uh th- this one I'm not sure this is the this is the one necessarily, but uh, but it's one that definitely pops up uh, on other TV shows, that being ricin. If, yeah. you know, I don't know if you watched uh, Breaking Bad, but I did, yeah. ricin shows up quite a bit. Oh yeah, yeah. So ricin is derived from the castor bean plant. Ricinus communis. The same, uh, the same species that's responsible for all that castor oil in our medicine and, and even our food products. You grind the beans into oil and then you're left with a mash byproduct and that's where you find the toxin. Okay. It's not a fast acting toxin, so symptoms here take between four and twenty four hours to set in mm-hmm. uh but ricin is highly lethal to humans. A single milligram of the stuff is deadly if inhaled or ingested, right now, long before Walter White plotted to poison you know half the cast of breaking bad with this stuff, the u s military actually patented a method to purify ricin toxin uh for the the coming great war for the the first world war, really, yeah, okay. But, but here's the thing, how do you deploy it on a battlefield?
4: Yeah, it's not like you can just mash up a bunch of beans and throw them at your enemies. Yeah,
1: you can't, you can't have like a, you know, a secret agent can only poison so many people. You can't yeah. do that to take out an entire, uh, you know, group of soldiers. The, uh, the Hague Convention of 1899 uh, ended up uh, stepping in and prohibiting the use of ricin as a projectile coating, uh, plus other uh, dis- uh, dispersal methods uh, that, uh, Ultimately proved ineffective because that's one of the things that you encounter with a, with a lot of potential bioweapons Yeah, is okay. The, the The substance itself is deadly under certain circumstances, but that doesn't mean it can really effectively be weaponized and uh, and deployed against, uh, especially against like a mass troop situation or you know or a, a major center of population.
4: Wow. Okay. So I'm thinking. By projectile
1: coating, we're talking about bullets. Yeah. So you literally coat bullets in ricin? That's, that is what is specifically banned, yeah. Wow. Now, uh as you might imagine, ricin occasionally pops up in small acts of terrorism, mm-hmm. but but it makes it an ineffective uh, mass terror weapon as well. According to a study from the New Zealand National Poison Center, terrorists would need several metric tons of ricin in order to, in order to target a large population. So that's it's a lot a, of beans. Yeah, it's a lot of beans, and it's a, again, it's an example of this is a poison that can be used with deadly efficiency. On an individual basis, yeah. but it's not the kind of thing you would necessarily be able to dump into the water So this isn't what we refer to as a chemical of mass destruction right. necessarily. Now, um, there there is uh, one case, though, that's pretty interesting where it uh, was effective in an assassination poisoning, uh, and this uh, occurred in 1969 uh, when an assassin fired a ricin-laced pellet much like, like our, okay. uh, our above example. Yeah. Into the leg of defected Bulgarian writer, uh, Grigory Markov. Okay. Wow.
4: Okay. So, like, I, I, this is just blowing my mind. Like, the idea, obviously, like, you see this in fantasy stuff like Game of mm-hmm. Thrones, right? Like, oh, I'll coat my sword with a poison or I'll, uh, actually, I think, doesn't, um, one of the guys from Dorn, he puts, like, some poison on his spears yes, or does, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I, I don't know. I just never thought that would work on high-velocity projectiles. Yeah, a
1: poison bullet but or a poison pellet in this case, but we have examples. To run through just what happens with rice and poisoning, if you inhale it, there's respiratory distress, fever, cough, nausea, a tightness in the chest, and this can lead to heavy breathing, low blood pressure, and respiratory failure. If it's ingested... Then you get vomiting, bloody diarrhea, severe dehydration, low blood pressure, seizures, organ failure, central nervous system problems, etc. So either way, you shake it, and then of course if it, if it gets shot into your leg as well, yeah, um, uh, some some bad stuff happens to your body, and it'll happen between you know in a, a four to twenty-four hour onset period. Wow. So. Pretty much of the six that we've chosen here today,
4: most of them have derived from some kind of – it, whether it's a beetle or a bean, mm-hmm. something that's just kind of crawling around in our natural environment, something that grows naturally in the world and exists. Yeah,
1: they're all organic. You can yeah. feel good
4: in, in, have, in using an organic poison. But they just don't – right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can sell them at Whole Foods. But they don't mix with our body chemistry. Like mm-hmm. just the, the science basically – Turns your body against you. Right. Right. This next one, though, is, and I have to say, part of my reason for cho- choosing this was because of the term heavy metal. <laughs> so it's actual. It's an actual element that can can kill you. And the reason I found out about this was because of a movie called The Young Poisoner's Handbook. And I don't know if I, you haven't seen it. We talked about this. But if anybody out there has seen it, it's this interesting indie movie from the 90s, I want to say.
1: Oh, OK. See, when you mentioned earlier, I had no idea like where to place the timeline. Yeah,
4: yeah. I want to say I saw it in the late 90s. Uh, and it is a true story about a guy named Graham Young. He was a British teenager in 1962, and he used thallium to kill his step mother, and then sickened several other of his family members. Then he was found guilty of that. He was placed in an institution. Then he got released from that institution in 1971, and you know what he did? He promptly went and killed two of his co-workers with the same poisoning. He he seriously injured two more with thallium poisoning. So this is a guy who is, like, obsessed with thallium, Uh, and he died in 1990 himself from a heart attack while he was in prison for his second term. Now, Thallium is a heavy metal. This means it's a member of a group of elements that have similar chemistry to one another. This includes lead, arsenic, antimony, mercury, and cadmium. All of these are toxic, and they tend to accumulate inside human tissues when they're digested. Furthermore, they pass along up the food chain when they're consumed, right? So uh, let's say uh, a rabbit gets uh, arsenic poisoning and then Mm. you eat the rabbit, you're then ingesting the arsenic yourself too, right? So thallium is a known poisonous substance and it's commonly found in rat poison and insecticides and it's nicknamed the poisoner's poison and the other nickname it has is inheritance powder. Huh. Uh, And (laughs) Yeah. But since the 1970s, it's been strictly controlled because of how toxic it is. It's colorless, it's odorless, and it's tasteless, as well as being soluble in water. It's essentially a soft gray metal that resembles tin, and it's so soft, in fact, that you can cut it with a knife. Hmm. Now, thallium attacks the human nervous system and our internal organs, and this causes hair loss vomiting, and diarrhea. I think all six of these poisons have diarrhea as a common denominator.
1: Yeah, I I guess it's a pretty good symptom of your your body just giving up the ghost.
4: Yeah. It's easy to confuse the symptoms of thallium poisoning with viral diseases, like influenza, for instance. Only a dose of one gram can lead to death. So... Three days after you poison a victim, they'll start suffering headaches, muscle problems, convulsions. They might go into a coma. They might experience delirium or dementia, maybe even psychosis. It acts slowly compared to a lot of the other poisons we've been talking about today, and it's very painful. It's especially attractive to poisoners because the symptoms resemble other illnesses and conditions. So you can usually get away with saying, like, well, it looks like somebody has the flu, and then they drop dead a day later. Other symptoms include alteration of the brain, a fast-beating heart that doesn't effectively pump blood, skin eruptions, swelling and sores in the mouth, skin atrophy, and something that's referred to as Mees lines. This is M-E-E. These are when on your nails you get these, like, white lines across your fingernails. I'd never heard of this before, huh. but apparently that's a symptom of thallium poisoning. Uh, and you can also have just a general physical sensitivity from your skin. There's also degenerative changes in the heart, liver, and kidneys, as well as bone marrow depression. The gastrointestinal phase of this poisoning, that comes before the neurological phase. So that occurs anywhere from 24 to 48 hours after ingestion. Then the neurological symptoms, those can take up to 2 to 5 days The big sign that it's thallium and not something else is alopecia, meaning hair loss. When your hair starts falling out, and this can occur up to two to three weeks later, but death actually can occur within five to seven days. It just depends on the body and the dosage that's within it based on, you know, whether or not your hair is gonna fall out before you die, essentially. Now, thallium was isolated independently by two chemists in 1861. We're talking about William Crookes, and Claude auguste Lemay, But it was technically discovered by Crookes, and it's found naturally in things like Crookesite, Lorendite, Hutchinsite, some pyrites, and manganese nodules that are found on the ocean floor. It can be recovered by taking the ores and roasting them in connection with the production of sulfuric acid or by smelting lead and zinc ores at the same time. Now, thallium has been used to poison people through their tea and other consumables. So this, again, is why it is the poisoner's poison. Uh, This actually happened in 1953 when Australian Caroline Grills killed three of her family members and a family friend by dosing their tea with thallium. In 2006, a 17-year-old Japanese girl poisoned her mother's tea And then kept a blog about how her condition developed. So she essentially over the days was tracking how the thallium was affecting her
1: mother. But it's just that just goes to show. Even in 2006, people were so hard pressed for some sort of angle for their blog. I mean, you had, you had to try yeah. anything. She had. She
4: was looking to get those uh, CPMS from her Google AdSense. I guess <laughs> I don't know. No, it's horrible to make jokes about this. I think her mother lived, so oh, luckily okay, it turned out okay. Thallium was reportedly plotted, actually, as a means to also kill Nelson Mandela when he was in prison, and then in 2004. Twenty-five Russian soldiers accidentally mixed thallium together with their tobacco. They were like hand-making tobacco cigarettes. They actually mixed it together and then were treated for poisoning after they smoked it. And then they used it as a talcum powder for their feet as well. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So this just goes to show you, be careful about what you put in your cigarettes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Or what you put on your feet. Uh, investigators from the World Health Organization also say that thallium was something that Saddam Hussein used to kill hundreds of dissidents. So, this stuff has a long history. It's, it's, it's a nasty bit of business. Fortunately, it can be treated. It's treated with something called Prussian blue, and this is a blue chemical pigment, uh, in a combination of potassium chloride. It's actually thought that Prussian blue binds with Thallium when it's inside our intestinal oh. tracts. and this is more effectively Than something that's called activated Charcoal which yes. is often used to help Dispel uh, these uh poisons So it binds better with it Then it keeps it from being absorbed And then passed through the rest of your body Activated charcoal though is recommended In the absence of Prussian blue So like most people's first aid kits don't have Prussian blue in it right, right.
1: But but you, you might have uh, these uh, charcoal capsules around. You can buy yeah. charcoal capsules at your local uh, Health store
4: Yeah So, thallium's derivatives, they're actually really common in just everyday items that we use, like medical scanners, electronic components, optical lenses, imitation jewelry, thermometers, and here's a weird one. Green-colored fireworks Hmm. specifically
1: have thallium in them. Well, this is this makes the the Russian account make more sense because I mean, to accidentally get it into your cigarettes, it has to be around, you know, around in in some quantity. Maybe they were grinding up imitation jewelry and smoking it. I hope they weren't smoking
4: green fireworks, but yeah, I'm not quite sure. It sounded to me like it was. Something that was, like, available on whatever base they were stationed at. And Mm -hmm. I think they thought it was just something that would help bind their tobacco together. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. Thallium, because it emits gamma rays, it can actually help doctors tell whether a heart is receiving enough blood and oxygen. So you essentially inject it into a patient and you can, you know, use a combination of gamma rays and thallium to see what's going on with a patient's heart. And medically, it used to be used to treat ringworm and other skin infections. But now we consider it way too toxic to, to chance that. So there's other better ways to treat your ringworm now than, than thallium poisoning. So that's thallium. That is one of
1: just a few heavy metals that can be used to poison a human <laughs> being. Yeah, well, I think we, we covered six uh, really good ones here. Uh, this is one of those situations where we could always come back and cover six more at some point.
4: Yeah. If those of you out there found this interesting, you want us to do more, please let us know. Uh, you can get in touch with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We also have our new Facebook discussion module where yeah. we have sort of more – uh I guess smaller intimate conversations about topics from the podcast.
1: Yeah, it's a good place for longer form uh, discussion as well. Yeah.
4: So if you want to confess to any poisonings that you've committed, you know, you can go on there and let us know. And rather than letting a million of our Facebook page followers know, you'll probably be letting like 200.
1: Yeah. Oh, um, uh, take it with a pinch of salt, a grain of salt. I meant to, uh, to expand on that. Oh yeah. So real quick before we close out, um, Pliny the Elder uh, wrote uh, about this. He used uh, he used the, the term taking it with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. uh, in in the Natural History, because uh, he was quite obsessed with antidotes for poisons uh, as well as the poisons themselves, and he shared the following: after the defeat of that mighty monarch, Marithodatis, Gnaeus Pompeius found in his private cabinet a recipe for an anecdote in his own handwriting it was to the following effect take two dried walnuts two figs and 20 leaves of rue pound them all together with the addition of a grain of salt if a te- person takes this mixture fasting he will be proof against all poisons for that day so take that with a grain of salt yeah. but this is one of this is a often attributed as being where we get that phrase. The etymological origin of yeah. grain
4: of salt that's interesting. I don't know the grain of salt would help you against thallium poisoning. No, but I do not think it would. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, hey, once again, there you go. Six deadly poisons. And if you have, uh, you want to get in touch with us directly, you can send, uh, your least poisonous comments to us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.